And there's a sense that we can only design black shows, you know. Like February is like my busiest month. <laughs> and I always tell people, like, you know, I can design uh, outside of February. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. In this episode, we bring you our interview with lighting designer Kathy A. Perkins. Over the course of a remarkable 45-year career, lighting designer Kathy A. Perkins has worked in theaters all over the United States and as far away as Cuba and South Africa. She has also cultivated a distinguished academic career as a theater historian, editing or co-editing several collections of plays and textbooks, including most recently, The Rutledge Companion to African-American Theater and Performance. As a professor, she chaired the MFA Lighting Department at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for 20 years. And then in 2012, she joined the faculty at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she is now a professor emerita of dramatic art. Kathy spoke to us from her home in Durham, North Carolina. We always love to profile people in our backyards, right, Rob? Yes, indeed. I started the interview by asking her about an upcoming project she's particularly looking forward to. Um, I have a book that uh, hopefully by the end of the week, I will be sending it off to a publisher. I'm working on a new collection of plays. It's called Telling Our Stories of Home, International Performance Pieces by and About Women. So that's something I'm very excited about. I have a possible Broadway show coming in the fall. I don't want to mention a name because <laughs> until I have it signed in ink, I don't want to announce it. Those are two things I'm looking forward to. Wow. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. Obviously, the, the chaos of last year created a lot of turbulence for, for artists. I'm curious because you, you, you specifically have a, a big background in the African diaspora and looking at you know, black artists uh, working in the theater. Can you talk in your opinion and perspective of what opportunities might be presented for women and for BIPOC designers coming out of, of the COVID experience? Well, we're hoping that there will be more opportunities for people of color, particularly black people, to direct design, have plays produced. I'm beginning to see that, you know, with a lot of the upcoming seasons uh, some of the regional theaters are becoming a little bit more inclusive. I, I'm I'm hoping that this is just not a a trend for a year or two, and then things go back to the way they were, which tends to be the case throughout history. Uh, I've been in the business for 45 years, and I don't get excited at moments like this because I know it'll just be a a momentary thing. But I I'm hoping I'm wrong. Because I think technology, social media is shaming people. And um, I think, I don't know, things may get better. Like I said, I've been in this business for 45 years. And every time something like this happened, you know, we had the death of Dr. King. You know, things were going to change, although I was 13 at the time. And then, you know, every time there's some major event, it's like, oh, we need to do better. And then things will happen for a year, then we go back to the way it was. No, I would like to think that things are going to change in a, for a long term this time around. 
and like I said, it could be because of social media and people are, are being shamed and there, there are more voices out here and the world is watching us. You have been around a long time. I know you started off getting your, <laughs> yeah. um, your, B, your BFA at Howard University in the early 70s. Right. So you've seen decades and decades. What what does the theater scene today for BIPOC artists and designers look different from the early 70s? I think there are more um, young people getting degrees, going to school, which is good. Whether they're working more, that's another story. I know particularly in the case of Black women, in lighting, and even women in gen- across the board in lighting, it has not been very easy. There's a young woman, uh, Porsche McGovern, who's a lighting designer, and I think she's been doing this for like maybe six, seven years, where she's been doing these statistics of women working, you know, off-Broadway, on-Broadway, in regional theaters. And I think maybe two years ago, I think the women working profession in New York City was like less than 23%, uh, although we are like about 50% of the MFAs coming out of universities. The numbers are low. I think they've gotten a little better, but, you know, women don't work as much as, as white men. And you just don't see this on Broadway in large numbers or the regional theaters. <laughs> right. You were saying that, you know, you're afraid that this might be just a one-off for one or two years, a kind of a token gesture that they'll make to include people of color, then go back to normal. A lot of regional theaters, as you know, have put more concrete plans in response to social media and movements like we see white American theater. But where where do you think the greatest resistance will come from? What might you know, because you've worked all over the country, what might you know that they don't realize about the way they operate and about their fundamental beliefs? No, they know how they operate. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I mean, some will pretend that they don't know. What I'm always hearing is that we can't find, we can't find Black people. And, you know, that's a myth. Ten years ago, I started a Facebook page called Black Designers. And there are a lot of designers on there. They're always looking for work. And another colleague of mine, they started another website called uh, Create Ensemble, which is actually a better site because anybody can go to it. My site is a, you know, it's a private site just for black designers for discussion and, you know, networking and everything like that. But I think, well, I know her site is much better because I'm telling people to migrate to that site because I really want to get off Facebook altogether. (laughs) And, And this would be a site that people can easily find folks, you know, instead of people contacting me and saying, oh, can you give us a list of people? They need to, I mean, just basically hire us. And I think there's this sense that, we aren't capable of designing shows. I mean, like I said, I've been in this business for 45 years. You know, I have the same MFA degree that my white colleagues have. You know, I've been passed over for shows by a young white guy who may have had maybe a third of the amount of experience that I've had. So there's this whole thing about a black person can't do this or women don't understand the new technology so, I mean, I, I guess you have to get these folks out of that kind of mindset. So and there's a sense that we can only design black shows, you know, like February is like my busiest month. <laughs> and I always tell people like, you know, I can design uh, outside of February <laughs> <laughs> or I don't have to do the black show. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I enjoy doing black shows, you know, that's my area of expertise is black theater. But, you know, I, I can do Tennessee Williams or, you know, Paula Vogel or, or whatever. 
what do you see as m- most broken in the the system of of um, attracting, hiring, and retaining black artists? I don't know. Without saying, it's just a racist business. Dispen- I mean, it's systemic the, racism. Yeah. Yeah, systemic racism. Yeah. I mean, we've always had difficulty. Like if, when I when you look at the history of blacks in design, it's always been difficult. I was sitting here. I was just sending a picture. There's a guy by, well, he's deceased, named George Corrin. He was the first black to go to Carnegie Mellon. And God, don't get, don't quote me with the years. I don't know if it was 39. I think he finished in 39 because he ended up getting his MFA from Yale. He was the first black person to go to Carnegie Mellon. It was called Carnegie Tech at the time. I just have all these letters, you know, going back and forth. They were making all excuses why he shouldn't be there. Because in the earlier years, it was very difficult for black men to go into theater programs at PWIs, a predominantly white institution. One, there was this fear that they would be intimate with white women. So they didn't get into these schools. It wasn't really until like the 60s, 70s that you saw black men going into acting. A lot of them had actor training either at private places or, you know, most of them went to HBCUs. So, so yeah, that's that's part of the problem. There's a sense that we don't belong here. And I've been listening to, you know, different people in my group. There's one guy who just said he's, I mean, he's union. He said, I mean, he's a little younger than me. And he just says, I'm just leaving the business. They really don't want us here. So I'm just going to go out and do my own thing. And I think what this period is, in a way, it's sad. I think this period of this pandemic and the whole George Floyd thing, I'm seeing particularly black designers, they're thinking about just leaving the business altogether. Right now, there's a lot opening up in TV and film. There are a lot of um, black playwrights, black directors who are getting positions. And these playwrights and directors are, are bringing in, you know, young black artists. And so a lot of them are migrating to TV and film. You know, you say, I can make a living. I'm working with somebody that respects me, you know, a team of people that respects me. And, you know, so I'm seeing a lot of this happening. Uh, and there was young, a, a friend of mine uh, who's an amazing set designer, because there's not a lot of black women set designers. And the few that I know, it's like, uh, no, I'm working as an art director. <laughs> it's like on this TV show and mm. this game show. It's like, I don't think I'll go back to theater. If you knew what you knew now, what would you have told your your 24-year-old self? Oh, no, I knew what I was getting into. (laughs) I went to um, an HBCU. That's very different from a Black person going to a white institution. Right. I was at Howard University in the 70s, and we had a touring house on campus. I mean, it's still there. And my advisor... Uh, was the guy who ran our touring house. His name was Ralph Dines. And he was like the biggest mentor in my life. Uh, Mr. Dines, he taught me the ins and outs of the business. He was in charge of um, local 824, whatever the, the IA local is in D.C. And at the time, I don't know if you know much about the locals, IA, it used to be segregated. Uh, anything that had A behind it, like local 1A were black people, local 2A were black people. And I think DC was 824. I can't remember something like that, 24A. 
and Mr. Dines, and there was another guy named Berkeley Williams. They both were at our touring house. And I think one had been like secretary of the union and one had been president. But they really knew the ins and outs of the business. And they were so smart. What they did, the black locals began to merge with IA because I forgot when it became a law that they could no longer be segregated. So the black locals began to merge, I think, in the 50s or 60s or something like that. And Mr. Dines was so smart. He waited until the 70s or early 80s. And I'm sorry, I should know all these dates to merge with the white union. And it was years later when I interviewed him about all of this, because that's when I was doing my research. And I said, why did you all wait so late to to merge with the white local or the main local? And he said he did this because he was trying to get as many blacks into local A as possible. So when they merged, they would be the dominant group (laughs) in in D.C. in the locals. Because usually what happened when he, what he noticed that when a lot of these black locals merged with the main local, you began to see fewer and fewer blacks getting in. Because the officers were still predominantly white. And actually, basically, they were white. Uh, I mean, things have changed somewhat now. But I, I just thought that was so smart of him. And, you know, when I told him that I was seriously thinking about pursuing lighting and career, he said, you know, come to my office, you know, set aside an hour and a half. We need to talk. And he sat and talked to me. He, you know, he just said, you're a black woman. You're here in D.C. You know, this is family. You know, 90 percent of the people you work with are black. It's going to be a whole different world when you get out here. You know, when you go to grad school, when you start working, he says you're going to be humiliated. You know, you don't need to expect this. You know, and you cannot take this stuff. Well, yeah, you, you should take it personally, but uh, this is the way the business works. You know, you're going to be overlooked for people who are going to be mediocre. So I was prepared, you know, so when I got it, then nothing was new. What did it take for you to finally feel like you've reached a place where you feel like you've broken through and have established yourself as a credible, sought-after artist? Hmm, that's an interesting question. You know, in a way, I... I've been sought after and, you know, but it was mainly within my black community. And for me, like I said, coming from an HBCU, that was important for me because when I left Howard or Michigan, you know, my goal was not Broadway. I mean, my goal was to work at a place like the Negro Ensemble Company, which I did, you know, because I was there during the time with Felicia Rashad and Denzel Washington, well, between the Negro Ensemble Company and the New Federal Theater, you know, for me, that was like success. You know, if I happened to get to Broadway, that was fine. Although I did assist my, um, another mentor was Shirley Pendergrass. And she was like, well, the, the only one, still the only one, the first black woman to design on Broadway. She did several shows. And you know, I was told to look her up and when I got to New York, and I did, and she was a big mentor of mine. I assisted her on a Broadway show, and uh, this was like 1980, I think. And, you know, she trusted me. She said, why don't you go in two hours before me and start focusing? Uh, you can start doing all the backlight and the downlight, you know, because that was easy to do. And so I get to the theater at 8 o'clock. I call was at 8. Uh, the other thing is I have a very white name, I've been told. Kathy Perkins is a white name. 
And then when people look at my resume, the only thing that gives away that I'm a black woman is that it's Howard University. And a lot of people don't know anything about HBCU. So if you don't know Howard University, you will assume I'm white. You know, I went to University of Michigan. I have an MFA. I worked in Europe. And just because I designed black shows doesn't mean anything because most black shows are designed by white designers. So that doesn't mean anything. So looking at my resume, it's, it's assumed that I'm a white woman. So anyway, so I go into the theater. It's eight o'clock and you all worked in the theater, you know, in the back then you had what was called an A-frame. It's a ladder it's shaped like an A. So you have to have four people, a guy on each end of the ladder, and then the fifth person goes up. So you have to have a five people, five person crew. That's the union standard. So I walk in. And uh, I introduce myself, and the five white guys on the ladder, they sort of look at me. It's like, really? <laughs> and then one guy proceeds to say, I ain't working with this, and walks away. He didn't even say, I'm not working with her. He says, I ain't working with this. And he leaves. He walked away, and my first re- and I, I looked at the supervisor, the master electrician, and I said, well, what are you going to do about that? It's like, you know, we're on a clock. Time is money. And this is Broadway. Uh, And this is my first time working in a Broadway house. And he says, oh, we're the brotherhood. I I don't know. He started telling me all this crap about where I brotherhood and I can't really do anything to him. And and I said, well, I've got to focus the show. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to call so-and-so who lives in Jersey somewhere. And I'm looking at my, my watch. And I said, that's like an hour away in rush hour. He's got to come across the George Washington Bridge. He's not going to get here before nine. Like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. And so everybody, take a coffee break. And my my reaction was I wanted to just cry. And I I was listening to my it, Mr. Dine's voice like, don't ever let anybody make you cry. He said, that's the. That's the worst thing you said. Don't ever let anybody make you cry. It's like, you know, you don't cry on stage. You go to the bathroom and then cry. Don't ever let anybody see you cry. And so I always taught my female students, like, don't let anybody make you cry. Because, you know, but I just, I wanted to cry. No, not so much because I felt humiliated. You know, like I said, I was prepared for all of this. But I wanted to cry because I felt that I had disappointed my my mentor. I mean, my, you know, Shirley Pendergrass, a designer. So she's going to come in and it's like, how do you explain to her that I've wasted two hours? She was very understanding. You know, it's like, you know, I, I know exactly what's going on. It's fine. Are you seeing changes in diversity in the unions, in the technical unions that you work with? Uh, yes. For the first time in history, USA has two black officers, two or three, and one Asian officer. Yes, that has happened during the pandemic. Wow. In mm-hmm. 2020. It took that long. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure they're the first black officers. As a lighting designer, out of all the designers, maybe sound designers too, I think lighting designers always have to keep up with technology and keep having to learn new stuff. You always have to be on your toes. Constantly. Do you mentor differently now than you might have 10, 15 years ago? No, not really. I'm not teaching anymore. I haven't taught in two years, but I'm finding myself mentoring a lot. Uh, I don't know if it's because I have time. I don't know if it's because of the 
of the Black Facebook page, uh, or maybe there are more uh, young, more Black women going into the field. In fact, I'll be speaking with a young Black woman tomorrow who recently got her MFA uh, from Tulane. And so, you know, I I try and help them find work, um, either teaching or, or designing. I usually try and encourage them to do both. You know, it's great to freelance, but and this was something that I learned because teaching was never something that was on my um, my agenda. It was just something I got into by accident. And then I realized how much I love teaching. And also because I'm a researcher and I found that being connected to a university was very advantageous, you know, in terms of getting grants and stuff like that. And uh, it allowed me to travel also teaching, I'm in tune with the latest technology because, you know, even if my school can afford it or not, you know, EKC is going to bring this to us and it's like, we want you to see this or, or going to USITT, which is great. You know, I get to see what other professors are doing and you get to see the latest technology. So for me, teaching had its advantages, but I would always tell my students, if you're going to teach, make sure you're still designing because you don't want to get, you know, stuck. Just, you know, being in that school, you know, that makes you a valuable teacher because you have professional experience to bring back to your students. What do you think in your conversation with her tomorrow, what do you think is the most important piece of advice you're likely to give her? Well, I've already spoken to her years ago. Like, this is not an easy business for a Black woman, so you have to understand that. And I think she's very clear on that, and I'll just reiterate it. But I'll just tell her, you know, if this is your passion, you, you have to pursue it. You know, you're going to hear no a lot, but don't take that as defeat. Just take it as, okay, there's something better for me and I'll just move on. That's the way I've always operated. I never saw, I never um, accepted no as defeat, you know, and and that's something I learned not even from my advisor, but just growing up in a segregated, you know, Alabama. It's like, if they say no, it's, 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 it's their loss because, you know, you're better than what they need anyway. So just move on. You know, if doors don't open for you, you build your own. That's always been my philosophy. Kathy is an artist who, just by the nature of her committing to her career, was an art restarter decades ago, right? Right. I mean, it's amazing to think that should this Broadway gig work out, let's hope it does, she'll only be the second Black female lighting designer to light on Broadway in 2021. That's unbelievable. So Shirley Prendergast broke a ceiling, but there's still a lot of that ceiling left to break, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that I really enjoyed hearing from her was that, you know, Broadway and that kind of success was not her goal, right? She had a clear idea of what she wanted her career to look like, which is to amplify the work and voices of Black artists in the American Mm -hmm. theater. Mm -hmm. Broadway, the fact that Broadway came late in her career is kind of just a cherry on top of her, this rich career Sunday of hers. Mm. I think there's a lesson there in terms of creating personally meaningful goals, defining what success is specifically for you Mm. and sticking to it rather than reaching for the same brass ring that everyone else is reaching for. And also you have to, I think the other lesson I hear from her is you have to find your allies early. Big time. And stick with them. She she had mentors, which is crucial. Big time. And then deciding to work with then very young 
black company, she had right. uh, she had people who aligned with her values yes. and could keep her on track. Yeah. And I want to say yeah. something about the champions, uh, allies idea. When it comes to mentors, one of the tricks that I, I think often doesn't get discussed is that mentors come and go. And so the person who's the right mentor for you at the right time, that's a chapter in life. And and yeah. when they become no longer the right mentor, it's having the willingness to let that relationship go, which sometimes can be painful, especially for the mm. mentee who has become so sort of, uh, I don't want to say reliant, but guided by the advice of the mentor. Uh, but having the the wherewithal to recognize, okay, that chapter is closing and it's time for me to to let that relationship go as well, at least from a mentor mentee standpoint, and move on. And and she did. She had people at the right times um, offering her the right insights. And eventually, she became the mentor to young artists. Yeah, you know, That's which is right. just so powerful. I, and I actually, I hope that someday Kathy's going to write an autobiography about everything she's done because <laughs> she's got way too many amazing and crucial stories, you know, not to share. She, she really could be one of those icons that are just unknown. Yeah. Uh, she's, she herself is a crucial part of our theater history. Yep. If you'd like to learn more about Kathy and see some of her lighting designs, please visit uncsa.edu slash art restart. If you enjoyed this interview, please let us know by leaving us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. There's some wonderful interviews coming down the pike. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>